My name is Austin. I'm so grateful to be here with you all tonight and uh, really just for the opportunity to open up God's Word. Please turn with me to the book of Romans, the book of Romans. And I know it's been a while since we've been back in this book, but if you think about it, as we've been going through the series on evangelism, the message of Romans has been on the forefront of our minds, hasn't it? Because it's about the gospel, because it's about proving the goodness of God's redemptive will to bless all the peoples of this world. And we do so through our lives, in the way that we live, and also through the message that we proclaim. And so as we consider Romans tonight, I hope that you see this message not so much as a tangent to our series, but rather as a reinforcement to it. Romans chapter 4 is where we're going to be tonight. To be or not to be? That is the question. Like that. These are familiar words, I suspect, to many of us here, right? Coming from the play Hamlet, where the main character opens up his soliloquy with these very provocative words. Two options are laid out for us to consider. Should he live but suffer, or should he take his life and not be? Well, tonight we're going to consider a similar question, except that this question is far more pressing. This question has implications and ramifications that go well beyond death. This question carries its weight into eternity, and it's simply this, to work or not to work. To work or not to work. That is the question. And I'm not talking about whether you should get a summer internship or whether you should go to lab next week or whether you should study. I'm talking about that question that you and I ask ourselves when we think about life after death. If there is a God, and if there is a heaven in which he dwells, how do I get to him? How do I enter into his presence? How do I become right and acceptable in his sight? Do I need to work my way into his heaven? Do I need to work my way into his presence? Do I need to do something to be accepted before him? And throughout human history, so many people have asked this very question. And so many people, so many people have gotten this question wrong. And it's cost them their lives forever because of it. My friend, if you're not a Christian here today, I'm grateful that you're here. And I'm grateful that I have an opportunity to clarify some things for you because I don't want you to be a number in that statistic. No, you do not need to work your way into heaven. In fact, you cannot work your way into heaven. This is not my opinion. This is not a truth that I believe in that may or may not work for you. 
This is what the Bible says. God has spoken, and he has spoken in no uncertain terms, and that's what we're going to see tonight. Romans chapter 4, reading the first eight verses. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Tonight we're going to see a portrait of the justified, a portrait of the justified. If we were to consider a man who is justified before God, who is declared right and righteous before God, what will we see? Well, first, if you want an outline, we're going to see his action. His action, the action of the justified, verses 1 to 3. How is a man justified? What does a man have to do in order to be made right before God? And second, we're going to consider his attitude. His attitude, the attitude of the justified, verses 4 and 5. If we were to perform some spiritual surgery on a man who is justified before God, what will we find on the inside? What would his heart look like? What would his inclinations and dispositions be? And finally, we're going to consider a justified man's admission, his admission, the admission of the justified, verses 6 to 8. What does a justified man experience? And how does he articulate the reality in which he lives? So we're going to see tonight a justified person's action, his attitude, and his admission. Let's start in verse 1. The action of the justified. What then shall we say? Now Paul begins this section with a phrase that is familiar to all of us because he's used it earlier in his writings before. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 9. And as you read through the entirety of the letter of Romans, you'll find that this is a phrase that Paul loves to use. He uses it in chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 15. Chapter 7, verse 7. Chapter 9, verse 14. Chapter 9, verse 30. Chapter 11, verse 7. And I bring this up to you because I want you to see that Paul is a master at rhetoric, and that he is strategic in, in how he writes. The book of Romans, the letter of Romans, is not an easy book for us to digest. Not only does it contain very dense theological truths at time, but it also asserts, it also claims, it also brings out some truth that are very difficult for us to swallow because it runs so contrary to human wisdom and understanding. And Paul, as the writer of this letter, understood that he was going to present some hard truths to his readers and that it was going to ruffle their feathers. It was going to stir their pots. It was going to cause them to raise their hand in objection. 
And so as he presents these truths to his readers, he anticipates that and he leads off with this phrase subsequently, what then shall we say to address those issues? And so as we come to chapter 4, verse 1, and we see this phrase, and we understand how it's being used in the rest of Paul's letter, we must ask the question, what hard truth did Paul just lay on his readers? What hard truth did Paul just assert? And we find the answer to that question in chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, Paul had just introduced the doctrine of justification by faith in chapter 3, verse 21. And he summarizes his argument here in verse 28. Now, this statement would have been a problem to his readers because they were, yes, Christians, but they had a Jewish background. And the popular notion of the day in Judaism is that a man indeed was justified by his works. God had revealed his law, his requirements to Israel. And if you wanted to please him, if you wanted to please God, you kept the law. You were a good Jew. You did the works of the law. And so when Paul makes that statement that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, there would have been several questions raised. Paul, if the law does not save, if the law does not justify a man, and if the works of the law did not justify a man, what then is the purpose of the law? Does faith abrogate the law? And these are valid concerns and questions that the readers would have had, and Paul will get to those questions. He will address those, but not now. Instead, he has a more immediate concern, and that concern is found in the person of Abraham. Look at verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Up to this point, Paul had been talking about the reality of justification by faith more or less in the abstract. But now in chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to put some flesh and bones onto his argument. And of all the different people that he could have chosen uh, to serve as an example to his readers, a man who is justified by faith, he highlights Abraham. Now the text says that, the text says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Another way to put this is, uh, what did Abraham find? What did he prove with his life? What did he demonstrate with his life? Now, who is Abraham? What is his relationship with uh, Paul and his readers? Well, according to this verse, he is their forefather according to the flesh. That is to say that these Jewish Christians traced their physical lineage back to Abraham. The whole Jewish race came from Abraham's loins. And so what was true of Abraham was also, had also, uh, also had implications um, for them because he was their prototype. Moreover, Abraham was widely considered uh, by the Jewish community to be the role model and the example of good works, and of obedience. And so, Paul's inclusion of Abraham here is strategic on many fronts. And he's going to discuss Abraham through this entire chapter, chapter 4. And while there is 
many things that we could talk about here about, about Abraham. Uh, I don't think that we need to consider every detail because we'll have two more sermons on Abraham tonight. Instead, I just want to highlight uh, to us tonight some details that I think are pertinent to this text. So let's keep reading. <clears throat> Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Now let's stop there for a moment. Paul entertains this hypothetical statement that Abraham was justified by his works. And of course, when we read that, we think, oh, come on, really? Because no one really believes that, right? But the Jews did, right? The Jews did. Uh, they believed that Abraham was indeed justified by his works. The prayer of Manasseh, for example, taught that Abraham was sinless. The book of Jubilee says, quote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Now, are these claims substantiated? Well, before answering that question, let's just consider Abraham's spiritual portfolio for a moment. He left his pagan homeland in Ur in obedience to God, Genesis 12. Uh, he obeyed God in going to Canaan and then to continue to follow God's leading to other places, Genesis 20, uh, 12, 5. And he almost sacrifices his son Isaac on the altar as an act of obedience to God, Genesis 22. And this episode in Abraham's life uh, would serve as the greatest example of obedience, of good works, that the Jews and other onlookers onto Abraham's life would point at uh, to, to recognize Abraham as being uh, such a righteous man. Now, just a footnote about Genesis 22. God never intended Abraham to kill Isaac because all of us are created in the image of God. Every single person that has ever lived, whether you're in the womb or out of the womb, were created in the image of God. And as a bearer of the image of God, there is an intrinsic dignity that is associated with being human. And so God hates murder and God hates human sacrifice. And so when God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, he's not, uh, he's not never intending Abraham to actually kill Isaac, but instead he's just testing Abraham to see if his obedience was genuine. And of course, Abraham tried, uh, but God provided a lamb, right, instead of Isaac. And so Abraham then would serve as a pretty good model of good works. He would be the patriarch of the Jews, who God would make a covenant with as well and promise to bless, and also to bless his following generations. But the problem is that when you consider the entirety of Abraham's life, you will find that he, just like you and me, is a sinner. He's a sinner. Genesis 12, 10 to 20, records the fact that Abraham was a liar. He lied to Pharaoh about his wife's identity because he didn't want Pharaoh to kill him to take his wife. Genesis 16 records the fact that he was an adulterer. He wanted children, and because his wife was barren, he took her maid, Hagar, and had a child with her. And so, 
clearly Abraham was blemished. Clearly Abraham was a sinner. And in fact, even the Old Testament would testify to this. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and ever sins. So, why then did the Jews esteem Abraham so highly? Remember, he, they said that Abraham was sinless. Well, it was because their assessment of Abraham was based on their own standards. It was based on their own standards. And human standards are always subject to compromise. They focused on the good in Abraham's life, and they ignored and even excused the sin. And here's a lesson for us as well, right? Because this is what we tend to do. When I ask people what they would say if they were to meet God, and God were to tell them or ask them, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Probably asked that many times um, to other people. The most common response that I get, and I think that you get as well, is, well, it's because I'm a good person, right? I'm a good person. And then you uh, kind of ask them to elaborate on that, and they say, well, I'm a good person because and they point to their works, right? Fill in the blank. I go to church a lot. I pray a lot. I help the poor, right? I serve the community a lot. I am a doctor. I heal people. All the while, though, ignoring their sin, ignoring the reality of their sin. And if they do talk about and bring up their sin, usually the logic is, well, you know, as long as I've done more good than I have bad, then when all is said and done, it should be okay, right? I should be okay. And look, I am grateful that many of you here are going into healthcare, that you guys are going to be serving the sick and the unhealthy. I'm grateful that many of you here are going to be building technologies that will help humanity tremendously in this generation and the next. I'm grateful that many of you here are going to be very involved at church. I am grateful that many of you here will be perhaps even going into the nonprofit sector to take a pay cut because you understand that uh, there is a cause that is greater than yourself and you want to serve that cause. But for a moment you think that any of that can be brought before God and that he will have any smile upon that. If you think that any of those works that you do can make God happy or make him accept you in his sight. You cannot be more wrong. You can't be more wrong. Look at the end of verse two. For if Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Abraham had plenty of things he could have boasted about if he was justified by his works. His peers certainly could testify to that, but God would still not be impressed. Next week is the last week that high schoolers have until they need to decide which college they're going to this fall. 
it is college admission season. And by implication, it is also college rejection season. Now think back to your high school senior year. Uh, you probably applied to many colleges and probably got into some and didn't get into others. Well, imagine for a moment that you really wanted to go to UCLA. You really want to go to UCLA because, I mean, GOC makes it worth it, right? John MacArthur and Chris G. You really want to go to UCLA, but you get rejected. You get rejected. But you show up on campus in the fall anyway. No Bruin card, no swipes, no, so sad. And uh, not living in the dorms. And uh, you're not in the system, you're not in my UCLA. And you attend lecture on day one. And you start chatting it up with you know, your classmates. And as you guys are talking, they find out that you didn't even get into UCLA. So they ask you, what the heck are you even doing here? And you take out your college application and you tell them, look, upon full and final review of my college application, I just got to tell you that this body of work here, impeccable. 4.5 GPA, I'm a triathlete, I am present to two clubs, I have all the honors in the world, and the list goes on and on and on and on. So I deserve to be at UCLA. I feel strongly about it. I am convinced in my mind that I belong here at UCLA. And if you think I'm crazy, by the way, ask my peers. Ask my peers. Go to my high school, ask every single person that knows me, and they'll tell you that I deserve to get into UCLA. Ask my parents. They will tell you that I deserve to get into UCLA. Ask my two-year-old brother who doesn't even know what a UCLA is, and he will tell you that I deserve to get into UCLA. So I rest my case. Now, that's cute, right? Except that's nonsense because your assessment of your application has no bearing on the reality that you live in, right? Ultimately, it's not your opinion about your body of work that matters and that counts, but it's UCLA's. And clearly, you did not meet up to their expectations, and so you got rejected. And I think that that is like us with God as well, right? We tend to make our own standards of righteousness. And we think that as long as we live up to those standards, that God should be pleased. But the problem is twofold. First, we don't even live up to our own standards, right? How are those New Year's resolutions going? Seriously, right? And second, ultimately what matters is not your standard of righteousness. Ultimately what matters is God's standard. And his standard is perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus would say, Matthew 5.48. And so even if you garner all of the accolades and, and the, the, the prizes and the, the, the just everything good in this life from men, from your good works, 
They are still, as Isaiah 64, 6 says, like filthy garments to God. Your sinfulness and your imperfections might be okay in the sight of your peers, right? Because we tend to cut each other breaks all the time. But God is not fooled. And God cannot tolerate your sin. He's not impressed by what you have done. He is not impressed and you cannot boast in front of him. And so what's the solution? What's the solution? If none of your works can achieve favor with God because you're in sin, what are you to do? Well, look at verse three. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. <coughs> Paul quotes Genesis 15, six here. And this is the episode in Abraham's life where God appears to Abraham and he tells him that he will be his shield and very great reward. Now, Abraham was wealthy, uh, but he had no son. And so Abraham asked God, well, if, how can you be my very great reward if I have no progeny to, in, to inherit all of my <coughs> possessions? And God promises him a son. God says that his heirs would come from his own loins. And it is in the context of this promise God made to Abraham that we get to verse 6. And Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. All Abraham had to do was believe in God and believe in his word to be justified, to be declared righteous before him. He had faith in God. He trusted in the promise of God, and that's what justified him. He was fully convinced that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. Romans 4.21 would back that up. And notice here that while Paul is an inspired, inspired writer of the scriptures, he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and anything that he wrote here could have been considered to be scripture. He appeals to scripture. And in doing so, he accomplishes two things. First, he grounds his assertion that justification is by faith and faith alone in the scriptures. And so if his dissenters wanted to debate that point with him, they would have to be confronted with God's word itself. And I think there's a lesson there for us to be learned as well. And in the spirit of evangelism quarter, um, I know this isn't the main point of the passage, but I think that it certainly is worth talking about here. How often do you quote the Bible uh, when you go evangelizing? Uh, how often do you quote the Bible directly when you evangelize? And more than that, how often do you actually show people what the Bible says when you evangelize? Just two weeks ago, on my lunch break, I came across some Jehovah's Witnesses. And they were set up outside a shop that I was passing by. And lately, I've been very provoked to talk to these types of people because while they're nice and all, what I see is blind people leading other blind people to hell. And it's sad, right? That's the reality of false teaching. And so I figured that, all right, look, 
If you're going to be out in the public, you're trying to invite conversation, right? So I'm going to take the bait. So I go up to them, and usually when I talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, I start with a question, do you know that you're going to heaven? Do you know that you're going to heaven? Well, no, no one actually really knows. Only God knows the heart. And so we continue to talk, and their bad theology starts to come out, right? 144,000 people that uh, mention a revelation, that's how many people are elect. And they don't know if they're part of the 144,000. And so we continue to talk and talk and talk. And of course, my point in starting with that question is, look, if you don't even know that you're going to heaven, what are you even doing out here? Right? What are you telling people? I mean, what good news are you giving to other people? And so we continue to talk, and we talk about all sorts of things. And at some point, I realized that this conversation is not going anywhere. These people aren't going to budge. And so I, I spot that one of the ladies had a Bible in her hand. So I ask her, well, you know, you believe in the Bible. You read the Bible. What does 1 John 5.13 say? Can you read that to me? And so she takes up her Bible, happily obliges, starts turning there. And I realize, oh, shoot. You know, they're reading the New World Translation, right? This is uh, their version of the Bible. And I have no idea what that verse reads in their translation. Maybe it's heretical. And so I'm just, oh, okay, hopefully, hopefully, you know, I don't fall flat here. And thankfully, it was okay, right? These things I have written so that you may believe that you have eternal life. Those who, the, these things I have written so that you may know you have eternal life, those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Right? And when she read that to me, I think she understood my point, because immediately she started to argue with me. Right? Oh, well, you know, everlasting life there does actually mean what you think it means. And that's essentially how the conversation ended. And as I was walking back to work, kind of debriefing our conversation, I had no idea how they were debriefing the conversation, but I left them with the word of God, right? And I think they understood my point, which is, look, all you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ. You can have the assurance of your salvation. That's the whole point of the book of 1 John, right? That you can know that you have eternal life. You don't have to find it in some kind of phony religion elsewhere. All you have to do, all you have to do to be saved is to believe in Jesus Christ. Anyway, back to Romans. Second, by appealing to Scripture... Paul shows that Abraham, a man who lived in the Old Testament, is also justified by faith. And in doing so, he's showing that the doctrine of justification by faith is not some doctrine that he invented. It's not some kind of fad of the day. Uh, but God's plan has always been to justify people who have faith in him through Jesus Christ. It's true in the Old Testament. It's also true in the New Testament. And the only difference is that Abraham, like those in the Old Testament, looked ahead to what God would do in and through Jesus Christ. And sure, they didn't have all the details, but I think that they understood that there was going to be a Redeemer that would come and that would save them. And that is why Jesus himself in John 8, 56 would say, 
Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So those are the people in the Old Testament. They looked ahead to what God would do in and through Jesus Christ. And of course, for us who live on this side of the cross, we look backwards to what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. And so, at the end of the day, justification is by faith, and faith alone in the work of Christ. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about the relationship between faith and works here, because that's what's being contrasted in verses 2 and 3, and as we'll see as well in verses 4 and 5. And Genesis 15, 6 is a good starting point here, because not only does... (coughs) Paul quote this verse in Romans, but James also picks it up. James 2, 14 to 24. And I invite you to turn there because I think it's an important excursus for us to take. James 2, 14 to 24. It reads, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Mm. And in the same way, Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, this is the passage that Roman Catholics love to use to argue that to be justified before God, you need both faith and works. And from a surface level reading of this passage, that may seem like the case, right? In fact, it may seem like James is contradicting what Paul is saying. James has said that Abraham was justified by works, verse 22 and verse 24. But Paul says that Abraham was justified by faith. And that's the passage that we're looking at, Romans 4, 2 to 3. So what's happening here? Well, you have to consider the context, right? And you have to consider the intent of the author as he was writing to his readers. Paul was dealing with a different issue than James was dealing with. Paul is, Paul's intent in writing Romans up to this point is to show that a man can do nothing to be justified before God. He needs a righteousness that comes from without 
And he can appropriate that righteousness by faith and faith alone. Now, what is the occasion for James's writing? Well, look at verse 14, because that will give us a hint. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So notice here that James is concerned with people who are simply offering up lip service to God, right? They claim to have faith, but the way that they lived demonstrated nothing about the existence of saving faith in their lives. James uses an example in verses 15 to 17 about just wishing someone well and not actually going and helping them and taking care of them. That proves nothing about the genuineness of your intentions. Verse 18, James says that faith doesn't exist in a vacuum. Right? The evidence of genuine faith is in your works. Your faith will manifest itself in a changed life. Verse 19, James brings up demons to make the point that faith is not simply an intellectual assent to the facts. Did you know that demons have good theology? Demons believe hell exists, Mark 8. Demons believe that Jesus is the way to salvation, Acts 16. Jesus is the Son of God, they also believe, Mark 8. They also believe Jesus is the Holy One of God, Mark 1. They also believe God is one, James 2.19. And yet they shudder. Why do they shudder? Well, it's because they know they're going to hell. Because they don't have true, genuine, saving faith. They don't trust in Jesus. And that's why they shudder. And then in verses 20 to 23, he brings up Abraham. First, he brings up Abraham's offering of Isaac on the altar. And then he says, verse 21, that Abraham was justified by his works. Now, in what sense is Abraham justified by his works? That's the money question. Well, we need to consider that word justify. And you'll find that word used two different ways in the Bible. The first way is what we've been sort of talking about, to be declared right, to be made right before God. Um, the second usage of justification is to demonstrate the truthfulness of an affirmation, to demonstrate the truthfulness of an affirmation. And Jesus uses this in Luke chapter 7, verse 35, where he says, wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, that doesn't mean, obviously, that wisdom was declared righteous before all her children, because that doesn't make any sense. Uh, what it means is that if you want to see, for example, if a plan is wise, you wait until the results, right? The results will prove whether that plan was wise all along. And so what James is arguing here is that works will vindicate your faith. It will demonstrate your faith. Remember, Abraham believed God in Genesis 15, 6, and he was justified then. But how do we know that he is truly justified? Right? As we read through scriptures, we, won't, we don't know that Abraham's faith is authentic until we get to Genesis 22, until it manifests itself in Genesis 22 where he offers up Isaac as a sacrifice, thus proving that he had genuine faith all along. And that's what verses 22 to 23 is about, that good works is the fruit of faith. And so if we were to combine Paul's use 
of Genesis 15.6 with James's use of this very verse, I think they pack a nice one to punch because the point, and their point is simply this, that faith alone saves, but that saving faith is never alone. That faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. So back to Romans. Your works will not justify you before God, but faith and faith in him will. And it's not because your faith is righteous in and of itself, but it's because your faith latches onto the one who is righteous. Your faith holds the one who can give you the righteousness that you need. And so we've seen that the action of a man justified before God is not to work and to work more, but it's to believe in God and to trust in him and the work that he has done through Jesus Christ. Well, let's take a look now at the attitude of the justified, verses four to five, the attitude of the justified. Verse four, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. I work for a software company. That is what I do uh, during the daytime, 40 plus hours a week. And something really cool happens every two weeks on a Friday. The digits in my bank account spike up. It's a pretty good feeling. It's known as payday, payday. And I think you guys will like it one day. <laughs> now, I love payday. I'm grateful to be paid to sustain my livelihood, but it is also something that I've come to expect. I don't throw myself a party every two weeks because of payday. In fact, I, I know that my employer is obligated to pay me, right? They are legally bound to pay me because before I started working for the company, I signed a contract with them. If I put time and effort and energy into develop, helping develop a product for my company, then I should get paid. I will get paid by my company, whether they like me or not, right? Uh, at my company, there is something called a menu of value-added activities, and this is a charter for professional growth. And it's a document that exists for every department in my company. And in this document, there are several levels and categories of tasks that you could do. And of course, in each level, there are several activities under it. And so on the most basic level, you have things like writing code. And in the more intermediate levels, you have things like reviewing someone else's code or leading a team or becoming the subject matter expert on the product or the project that you're working on. And on the more advanced levels, you have things like managing and coordinating a global team. Uh, you have things like delivering a talk in the industry. And the equation is very simple, right? The equation is very simple. The more higher level activities that you do, the more, the greater the works that you do, uh, the more opportunities you'll have to be promoted in the company, right? Uh, and as you get promoted, your title changes, your compensation changes. And 
So what it all boils down to really is simply this, that you are worth what you can do, right? You are worth what you can do. You are worth what you have done. But spiritually speaking, this is not how it works in God's economy. God is not like an employer and you like an employee. And let me give you several reasons. First, there is nothing that you can do to add value to your spiritual portfolio to present to God because everything that you do falls short of his expectations. You won't even get to your first performance review before you get fired. Second, God is not obligated to pay you. You see, an earthly employer is legally bound, right? Legally obligated to pay you, else they suffer the repercussions. But God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe you anything. Whatever works that you do, he's not obligated to then reward that. He doesn't owe you heaven. And finally, if earning your way into heaven is like climbing the corporate ladder to get to the top, what does that highlight? Well, it doesn't highlight the character of the employer, but rather it highlights the merit of the worker, the merit of the worker, right? And in God's economy, he is jealous for his glory. He does not, and he will not share his glory with another. And God desires to be seen by us to be the gift giver, and that's implied in verse 4. The gift giver, he desires to show and to demonstrate his benevolence to us. And so if we try to work our way into heaven, God's not going to have that opportunity to show that to us. Look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Notice how God is described here. He is described as him who justifies the ungodly. And my friends, this verse succinctly describes what the gospel is. First notice the action. And if it wasn't clear enough already, you don't work. You don't work, but you believe. And what do you believe in? You believe in God. And what do you believe about God? You believe that God justifies that he declares right the ungodly. Did you hear that? God justifies the ungodly. Notice what this verse does not say. It does not say God justifies the godly. It does not say God justifies the people who worked harder in this lifetime than others. It does not say God justifies the people who have it more together or the people who are more spiritual or the people who have cleaned up their act, or the people who have a nicer smile, or a kinder laugh, or a, a heartier heart, heart, who have a more benevolent heart, or people who go to church. No, God justifies the ungodly. And herein lies the admission that you are ungodly, that you are a sinner, well, how can God justify the ungodly without compromising his character? I'm going to cheat a little bit and peek ahead at Romans 5, 6. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. And then verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ 
died for us. John Piper once said, The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. Let me read that again. The wisdom of God (coughs) has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. And it is demonstrated through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us. There is a fundamental difference in attitude between the man who works for his justification and between the man who believes in God for his justification. And Paul contrasts that in verses 4 and 5. You see, working for your justification breeds pride and entitlement, but believing in God for your justification fosters humility. Working means trusting in your own ability to save. But believing means trusting in God's ability to save. Working means earning that which you think you deserve. But believing means receiving that that which you know you don't deserve. My friends, did you know that hell is filled with people who think that they deserve to go to heaven? Working means robbing God of his benevolence, but believing means proving God to be benevolent. Working puts you in the limelight, but believing spotlights him who justifies. Working means giving glory to yourself, but believing means giving glory to God. So we've seen that the action of the justified is to believe in God. And when we dig deeper into this heart of a man who is justified, we'll find that his attitude is one of humility. It is a posture of reception. Well, let's quickly consider now the admission of the justified. The admission of the justified, verses 6 to 8. Let me just read verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Paul brings David into the conversation, and that may seem very random to to you. I know it seemed random to me when I first read this because this entire chapter is about Abraham. So why does Paul bring up David here? Well, I think there are at least three reasons. First, Paul wanted to show that even the greatest king in Israel's history, David, was justified not by his works, but by faith, and faith alone. Second, it was a Jewish custom to establish a truth with at least two witnesses, Deuteronomy 19.15, Matthew 18.16. And so in a very Jewish way, to appeal to his Jewish readers, Paul is trying to confirm the reality of justification by faith by appealing to two witnesses of old, Abraham and David. And finally, Paul brings up David here to show that in every era of human history, a man is always justified by faith and not by works. It is true of Abraham, who lived before the law. You remember, the law was given a couple hundred years after Abraham. And it was true also of David, who lived under the law, under the Mosaic law. And it is also true with us. You'll notice that blessing is mentioned three times in verses 6 to 8. We throw around that word blessing quite a bit in our culture, don't we? I am blessed. B 
because B plate is serving lamb chops again. Ooh, good stuff. I am blessed because my 8 a.m. discussion was canceled and I could sleep in. I'm blessed because I don't have to sit in a class that meets at Broad until 7 p.m. on a Friday night. But notice what blessing is connected to in this passage. It's connected to the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessing is connected to justification. And look at how Paul expands on this fact, verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Notice what David admits in Psalm 32 here. It is a blessing to be justified because that means that your sins are dealt with. It's been said that the more important a concept is in a culture, the more words and the more phrases there will be uh, to express that idea or concept. And I think that logic works here as well with our sins being dealt with. Look at the parallelism. First, your lawless deeds are forgiven. To be forgiven means to have something lifted and taken away from you. Uh, to, ha to have something be carried off. And the image here is that of a scapegoat. If you remember Old Testament, the Aaron, the high priest, would confess the sins of Israel over the goat, and then they would send the goat away into the wilderness. Second, your sins are covered. They are hidden from God. This means that sin is a matter of the past, and God will not bring it up again as a ground for his displeasure. Because when he looks at you, he sees you covered in the righteousness of Christ. And for that reason, you are accepted in his sight. And finally, your sins are not counted against you by God. Why? Because your sins are credited to Christ and his righteousness is credited to you when you have faith in him. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 The justified man will admit that he is blessed, and he is blessed because his sins have been forgiven. And how sweet is that, to know that your burdens have been removed, to, to know that all you have to do is believe in God, is to believe that he sent his son to die for you so that you could be made right before God. That's it. You don't have to do anything else. Faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And so I ask you, once again, if it wasn't loud enough, to work or not to work. The answer is very clear, isn't it? Let me pray for us. Father, we give you glory because we know that we don't deserve to go to heaven. We know that all of us are deserving of hell because we're all sinners. 
And yet, Lord, you have chosen by your grace, by the nature of your very character, to send your son Jesus to this world 2,000 years ago to live the life that we were supposed to live of spotless perfection and righteousness, and then to die, to die for us, to pay for the penalty of our sins, and Lord, to rise again, to validate your son's life and his work. And Lord, for those who do not know you here tonight, I pray that they will come to not work, but believe, and believe in him who justifies. We give you glory for tonight, and we ask that you would impress these truths upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.